In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. World AIDS Day is commemorated every December 1st to raise awareness of HIV AIDS and to recognize those affected by it. Although there has been tremendous progress in the past two decades, there remain staggering challenges going into 2020 including the increase of annual new infections and the goal of ending HIV as a public health threat by 2030. My colleague Sarah Allender and I invited former president of the International AIDS Society, Dr. Chris Beyer, to discuss what the global community can do better to end transmission and to support those who are already living with the virus. Dr. Chris Beyer has had a long career researching and advocating for the needs of people living with HIV. He serves as Desmond M. Tutu Professor of Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also past president of the International AIDS Society, the host for the AIDS 2020 conference in July. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Delighted to be here. So we are recording today, uh, November 26th. We're a few days out from December 1st, which is the annual World AIDS Day commemoration. Uh, This is a yearly event where the HIV community comes together to commemorate those who are currently living with HIV, as well as all of those who have already passed away or are affected in some way by the virus. Uh, And this has been happening for now 31 years, since 1988. We are really at a pivotal time, I think, in the HIV epidemic and the response in terms of the success that we have had over really the last 20 years of concerted investment from the Global Fund and from PEPFAR. Uh, UNAIDS released new figures that there are 24.5 million people living with HIV on antiretroviral treatment, uh, which accounts for about 65% of all people living with HIV, which is really a tremendous accomplishment. But as we look ahead, 2020 is going to be a really big year and, in my mind, a make-or-break year for the response. Uh, I have a commentary coming out uh, today around this topic, and we thought it would be great to kind of talk a little bit with you, Chris, and with Andrew around what these big uh, issues and questions are as we look ahead to 2020 that I think not only the HIV community should be considering, but really the broader political community as we think about uh, what's at stake for HIV. Um, So really glad you can join us for the conversation. Uh, Maybe I will kick off just with a few points um, from my commentary on what I see as the big issues, and then Chris, tee it over to you for your thoughts. As I think about where we are in at the end of 2019, we have about 12 months until the first milestones with the fast track goals come due. So these are the a number of different targets that UNAIDS put forward five years ago now in 2014 that have really been the architecture for how 
PEPFAR, the Global Fund, other partners have been organizing and and targeting their work uh, with the goal of ending HIV in 2030. And what we know at the moment is that we are off track to meet those initial milestones by, by 2020, which makes the action and the activity over the next year vitally important. Uh, we have arguably the best arsenal of tools, the greatest amount of knowledge, and the structures and architecture in place to make this goal a reality. But we face some real challenges in terms of the amount of money available globally, which has really been stagnant for a decade, Uh, critical challenges in getting tools uh, out to those who really need them. Uh, And I think looking at the the oral PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, progress to date is case in point with only about 340,000 people on oral PrEP worldwide. Uh, I think this could really be a game changer, but we've faced a number of different barriers that are hindering and those numbers from growing. And there's some big, I think, political and organizational questions at play in 2020 in terms of new leadership at UNAIDS, uh, pressure on HIV community to integrate with other health areas um, amid growing momentum for universal health coverage. And certainly as we look at the United States epidemic, questions about our current budget process, the impeachment process, and the election, which could, uh, I think, makes the U.S. leadership on HIV a little bit fragile. Chris, what are your thoughts? What would you add to that list of of challenges and concerns? Well, Sarah, it's a very clear framing. And and overall, I I very much agree with you. I think if you look at at 2020, the milestones we were meant to achieve and, and, and what we've all committed to, to me, the most important uh, and challenging one that we are not going to achieve is the reduction in new infections. So, you know, we have had a tremendous and heartening uh, increase in treatment. And as you noted, about 65% of people living with the virus have at least been started on treatment. It's challenging and we're beginning to, to understand more about how many people default from care. Uh, and, and of course, uh, in how many places systems themselves, this of course is happening in Venezuela and it happened in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, uh, that systems can also fail people and lead to treatment interruptions. But, but nevertheless, the treatment has been going remarkably well, but primary prevention has really proven to be enormously difficult. And that is true in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's true in South and Southeast Asia, but it's also where we are uh, having the biggest challenges in the U.S. So we have had a stubbornly persistent 38,000 or so new infections a year in the U.S. for a number of years now. And the, you know, the estimated rate of decline is in the order of kind of 2% per year. Well, that is just nowhere near uh, where we need to get to. And the new uh, targets for the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative from the administration are for uh, an extraordinarily ambitious 75% reduction in new infections over the next five years. So we are absolutely not on that trajectory. And I think uh, it, it really is now upon us all as a community to think, what are we not getting right? 
how are we going to galvanize primary prevention uh, while maintaining so many millions of people on therapy? Uh, and, you know, we, we should be honest that barring any other new advances, we're still talking about daily oral therapy for life for all of those many millions of people. Um, and that in and of itself remains a, a funding commitment, a logistical challenge, uh, a political will <laughs> challenge. Um, and, and, you know, that, that we're, we're pressed just to maintain. But as I said, if we're actually going to really uh, get control of this epidemic, uh, we have to have a focus on primary prevention. And we, I could certainly talk to you about, about my own views about where I think we're not succeeding and why this is so stubborn. Um, uh, and I think that that will actually will be important for, for the next phase of the response. Well, let, let's talk about that, Chris, because I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, too, was another big area of concern for 2020 is that the demographics of the global pandemic are really shifting. And I know that's something you're, you've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think if, if you had looked a decade or more ago and said, uh, we will be doing spectacularly well with the low income, high burden, generalized epidemics of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and we will not be doing anywhere near as well in the United States, in Latin America, in South and Southeast Asia, uh, you would have said that's ridiculous. The African epidemic is, you know, the great majority of infections, and that's going to be the hardest challenge. Uh, in fact, with the PEPFAR investments, with the national investments, with the available uh, technology, we have just had remarkable success uh, in getting people on treatment, in reducing mortality, and in achieving some important declines in new infections, but not all. But if you look at the U.S., what we have is reasonable control uh, of the epidemic, except among the most marginalized populations and communities. So, you know, we have this very marked health disparity. If you look at the map of the U.S., HIV is increasingly concentrated in the South and Southeast. It's basically a big swath of the country that goes from Baltimore, where I live, uh, to Texas, across uh, Florida and the Deep South. Uh, we have widening health disparities where we have not expanded the Affordable Care Act and reached so many more people in need. We have a very concentrated epidemic in African Americans and Latino Americans. That's particularly true for women, but also, of course, for men who have sex with men. And we're seeing a new emergent threat on the horizon in the U.S., which is, of course, uh, these outbreaks of HIV related to opiate use, uh, which is happening on a very different map and includes places like Appalachia, New England, and the, and the Midwest. We also, of course, have two regions globally where the HIV epidemic is expanding. So it is not that the declines are too slow, but it's actually increasing. And uh, the most important of those, uh, and just in terms of sheer numbers of new infections and AIDS deaths, uh, by the way, is Eastern Europe and Central Asia, much of that driven by Russia. I mean, I thought it was really interesting in the UNAIDS report in July, which highlighted that when you look at Central Asia, Eastern Europe, you see a rising number of new infections. But when you back out Russia, there's actually a 17% decrease in new infections, which is pretty remarkable. 
Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately they too are seeing a, a great geographic disparity. Um, so, you know, infections are, are really at the highest levels in central western Siberia, in the Urals. Uh, in the most recent data from, from the Russians, which we're just analyzing right now, the region with the highest rate of new infections last year in Russia was Crimea, which is a real concern because, of course, when the Russians annexed it, uh, they stopped uh, methadone and, and other forms of substitution therapy. So that has really had, uh, apparently already starting to have some really grave uh, public health impacts. I would also just say, because you raised the issue, Sarah, about PrEP, that uh, the PrEP rollout has been uh, remarkably slow and uneven. We're still dealing with, with many countries that have not put regulatory frameworks in place that, that don't have approvals for PrEP. But maybe more importantly, a number of, of countries have really started to try and, and implement PrEP, including the U.S., and we were the first out of the gate. Uh, but certainly Kenya, South Africa, uh, a number of others, Thailand. And, um, you know, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that there is demand uh, when people understand the, the, the value of this approach. And this, again, is a daily oral preventive or uh, on-demand uh, intermittent dosing, which is happening in some countries. This was developed by the French and is a you know, a renal sparing and drug sparing way of, of managing this. It's only approved for men who have sex with men. Uh, but we now have a WHO guidance for that. That's because um, you, you really need daily oral for protection in women, cisgender women. But I think for many populations and adolescent girls and young women being a prominent one, uh, what we're seeing is that the uptake is modest and the adherence is, is not ideal and retention on PrEP is looking very poor. So you get a significant drop off after a month, uh, even more after three months, uh, at six months, you know, fewer than a quarter of people are still on PrEP who started it. And obviously, when we look at the life course and the epidemiology, we know that, you know, a couple of months of PrEP is not going to make any difference in somebody's lifetime acquisition risk. You, you have to be on this for the period that you're really at risk. And, uh, and so I think, I think this has given us pause that daily oral approaches to prevention uh, are not going to work in a lot of populations. This becomes then, of course, a research area for looking at things like injectables and long-acting agents and, and implants and, and uh, the, the vaginal rings, the depiverine rings. And there's a lot in the pipeline, but, but um, the only thing we have in hand right now is oral, daily oral. And the only thing we're really going to have on hand through this next year is going to be oral prep, as well as the other preventative tools that we've had all along in terms of condoms. And But really, oral prep is the only discrete, user-friendly tool, which means finding the ways around some of those barriers is going to be essential if we're going to make any progress on reducing new infections. Yeah. Um, Chris, back to your point around human rights. I mean, I think this this is really a critical issue. We've seen worsening human rights conditions in a number of countries. Um, I mean, clearly the Russia Crimea example, but certainly there have been other examples around the world. You know, there's been a, a lot of concern recently in Uganda around uh, some of the attacks on the LGBT community there and, and threats to reinstate the anti-homosexuality legislation. 
To yeah. me, one of the yeah. big challenges is that the U.S. has kind of ceded the space, um, but it's going to be really critical to, to tackle these challenges, not only to ensure that PEPFAR is, is successful, but to protect the high levels of investment, $90 billion over the last 19, 18, 19 years. You've spent a lot of time looking at these issues for HIV, but more broadly for, for health. Are there opportunities there, I guess, on the positive side, uh, in addition to the challenges? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very important question. Well, I think, you know, when you think overall about um, this kind of movement around health and human rights and the centrality of human rights to health gains and public health gains, HIV has really led the way there. And it really, really helped sort of pioneer uh, the understanding of those associations, and and it's always been in our DNA. So uh, I think it's I think it's a very important part of uh, the movement and the reason for many of its successes thus far. And uh, when you look, for example, at the the whole issue of sexual and gender minority rights in so many countries, it's really in the HIV space that LGBTQ people have any voice at all, and it's almost only in that space uh, that they do uh, and get to engage with their governments and funders and other stakeholders. This is true for sexual and gender minority populations. It's also, of course, very true for people who use drugs and people who inject drugs, uh, where, again, the, the policies, rights violations uh, in so many countries, most egregiously the Philippines, but, but also in a, in a number of others, including in Russia, um, have, are really aiding and abetting the virus uh, and uh, and inhibiting our responses. Where I see, you know, the 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 potentials for for real change and real success is first of all that we really have uh, developed a, a a global community of grassroots uh, and community activists who who really understand the rights aspects and who who are demanding uh, health rights and and protections and. That is very encouraging to me. I think we're, we're starting to see a number of countries rethinking the war on drugs policies that also, you know, made the HIV epidemic worse and led to mass incarceration in so many countries. That was happening in the U.S. and, uh, and the opiate crisis, I think, is a domestic opportunity for us to rethink. And you're already seeing that, that people are paying more attention to treatment and care, to talking about addiction uh, and dependency as a, as a health issue, as a public health challenge, not as a criminal justice issue alone. That's very important because that that has just played an enormous role uh, in the HIV epidemic and in TB, by the way. Chris, you were one of the early people to attend the HIV conference, and this year it's at uh, it's in San Francisco and Oakland. Yeah, and yeah. you know, looking ahead to that conference, do you see those issues being addressed as as central to the conference? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think we really see this conference and we increasingly view it as an accountability uh, mechanism. Right. It's really the one time that the world gathers and all the stakeholders gather every two years to really take stock of where we are and what we need to do. So, you know, the big picture downside for this conference is that that we're going to have to realistically say we did not achieve the goals that were set for 2020. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. going to be the moment. And it certainly is going to be the moment to say, and in particular, we have not made the goals about reducing new infections. 
Um, so a refocus on primary prevention is, is certainly going to be one of the outcomes. Because, as you said, Andrew, the demographics are changing and now more than half of new infections are in key populations, the folks who are so at the margins socially, politically. Uh, because of that reality, uh, the next phase of the HIV response has got to address this undone work in prevention and human rights. And they are just inextricably linked. Uh, we know that for gay and bisexual men. We know it for sex workers, for drug users, for trans folks. And I think, you know, Oakland and San Francisco are platforms that have really led not just the United States, but the world in tolerance and acceptance and progressive public health programming. So you're going to be able to see really an extraordinary response that has worked, uh, where the rates of infection are really coming down and where people have really made an effort to ensure health rights. It's also true that the stark disparities between San Francisco and Oakland, and that includes, of course, you know, the incredibly stark economic disparities that are at the heart of what San Francisco looks like in 2020, um, the, the tech capital, the capital of a new oligarchy. And Oakland, oh. Oakland is in a much more troubled place. And, and, you know, unfortunately, HIV is increasingly a disease of minority populations. And, and that also is going to be abundantly clear. And how do you think that's going to play out to, you know, the international community who's going to be there watching that and also competing for the attention of Americans who, you know, let's face it, you know, we've been increasingly focused outward for many years, PEPFAR and all the things that you've been working on throughout Southeast Asia and, and other places. But the United States now has a reputation for these last several years for turning inward. And this conference is certainly going to have a focus somewhat on looking inward inside our own borders and including because we know specifically now where we need to fight the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the last time, you have to remember, um, and Sarah will remember this history well, that we did not have an HIV conference in the United States for 22 years uh, because of the visa ban on HIV positive uh, people coming to the U.S. So uh, there was a, very much a sense that this international gathering was happening everywhere but here. And in Washington, there was an extraordinary kind of coming together again of the U.S. grassroots activists who had not been able to participate uh, with international folks. And I think for many of the international folks, the understanding, the recognition of just how resource limited so many communities and settings are in this country uh, was a bit of a revelation. That, I think, is going to come home as well uh, in San Francisco, Oakland, because we're making a very concerted effort to be sure that we have folks from the Deep South, from these most affected states and, and communities. And, you know, we're, we're really talking about Louisiana and Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, you know, it is our global South. Uh, and I think one of the, one of the things you, you really want to see is that solidarity of people, you know, understanding each other and the challenges that we face. You know, I, I often get pushback when we talk, for example, about scholarships from international folks who say, well, why should Americans get scholarships? They can all afford to go. 
Yeah, you've been to Mississippi lately, you know, young people, yeah. <laughs> social activists, they can't afford to go. Uh, well, much less they can just look down the street from your office, Chris, in Baltimore. <laughs> Indeed. So we have uh, we have work to do there, but I think it, it is a very important moment of of, uh, of global solidarity. I would add, you know, that that uh, obviously it's a fraught political moment. 2012, the last time we had the conference in the U.S. was also a presidential election summer. And this will be a test of the strength of this bipartisan consensus. We have been incredibly fortunate to have been able to maintain for decades now support for global aids and domestic aids through Ryan White and through the NIH research base, which is the largest in the world by far, supporting HIV AIDS research, everything from cure to vaccines to new prevention tools to better drugs to HIV and aging. Uh, but that consensus um, always needs care and, and refreshment. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, the country right now is so polarized and we expect it to be only more so next summer. So, so that will be on all of us to really work hard to maintain uh, that consensus uh, and keep it going. Well, the community's extremely fortunate to have you, Chris, as one of its leading lights. And thank you for joining us today um, on this podcast. You know, for Sarah and I and for Steve Morrison, we wish you all the best um, on your sabbatical and we will be in touch. All right. Excellent. Thank you all very much. And uh, World AIDS Day is always a little bit fraught for me. Uh, and uh, it's hard to avoid thinking about all the all the people one has lost. So it's not really a day to celebrate, but it is an important, important day to mark. And uh, so I so I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.